And welcome to Emmaus Way. I am Tim, and it's good to see all of you and meet a few of you that I haven't met before. Um, I'm obviously not Doug Paget, who is still sitting on the side of the road in Conover, North Carolina. Uh, apparently, uh, Brandon drove past him and just kind of, where's Brandon? And kind of waved or something like that. He was coming back from the Wild Goose Festival where Doug was speaking, but uh, they uh, they blew a tire out and the jack was broken in the van. And so they're still on the side of the road. And we decided about an hour ago that they would get here about 6.15 and, so they, and, and need to drive back to Asheville tonight. So they're staying and going back. So thanks to Mark Williams, who uh, with about 73 minutes of notice has uh, done a lot of preparation. So uh, thank you, Mark, for your flexibility. But I'm going to turn to my crew behind me here. You guys ready to lead us in the community song? 
Y'all ready? Not ready? Sort of ready? <laughs> Ada's ready. I, I can tell Ada's ready. So are you guys ready? Ready to join in? did great. We didn't have any printed lyrics or anything, and you just knew them, didn't you? I'm pretty impressed. Well, thank you guys so very much. Appreciate that a bunch. So welcome, everybody, to Emmaus Way. This is a community of friends that uh, gather each week around the table, around uh, biblical text. Uh, We interpret the text together. We listen. I I say this every week, and this is very, very true, is that uh, every person in this room is a part of the dialogue or changes the dialogue by your presence. And so each week it's exciting just to be with you to learn together, and to imagine our place in God's kingdom work, uh, not just in Durham, but in our broader community. So that's exciting for us. So it's good to see everybody here. It was great to see a bunch of folks here last week with uh, um, Molly's candidacy. Um, Quick thing, SK, is there any update on that or uh, or Ben or anybody? We, uh, the search committee is preparing a recommendation for lead team, and lead team meets tomorrow, so that will sort of be the final point. And if I noticed email correctly, uh, any feedback that you have should be coming to uh, lead team members now. So if you're a lead team person, wave your hand um, so there's a few people around the room. Um, Welcome back to Emily, who was, I think, probably on the plane from Kenya last week when we were doing, or just to have landed. So uh, anyway, we're glad to have you back with us as well. So any other announcements that we have as a community? Anything that's coming up or pressing? I mean, so next week, if everything holds, it looks like that's gonna we're gonna use that week in our Sunday gathering next week as a time to process our listening sessions that we had um, in the month of June, and so we're looking at that as a time to gather back together corporately with some things that we heard in, in smaller groups and sort of process that together. So that's something to be looking forward to next week. This has been great for us as a community. Not only has our, our, our staff changing, but it's changing in the context of our own imagination of, of what the kind of the next stage of our journey is. I think we've officially passed our 10th year, though we're going to celebrate it in September, I think. So with uh, Josh and Sarah uh, moving with jobs out of town and uh, uh, hiring a new staff member, all those things, we're just stepping into a new chapter of our life together. It's an exciting one, and uh, next week we'll actually be an important stepping stone to that because one of the methods that we do, most of you know know this, is that as our community reimagines its mission, reimagines its life in the community, it starts in conversation with you guys rather than, you know, maybe what I was always used to in church life would be maybe staff people, you know, had a secret meeting or not a secret meeting, but would pile their expertise and come up with a list and make a big presentation and say, hey, we want you to get on board with this. And we're, we do just the opposite, is that uh, we uh, do a 
variety of small group meetings around the community for you guys to speak into that, and uh, the leadership of our community gets on board with that. So next Sunday will be an important step in kind of hearing the, the feedback from multiple group meetings and, and moving from there. So again, Mark Williams, thank you for uh, the, uh, the, the 73-minute preparation, which I would be willing to bet you will not be able to tell was the case uh, with that. And I'm going to turn it back over to you, Mark. Ironically, of 73 minutes is like the exact amount of time that will fit on one CD, by the way. I don't know if anybody, nobody listens to CDs anymore, but if you did, 73 minutes would be the max. I was thinking about both from our talk uh, last week in our dialogue, as well as where, um, I haven't read Doug's new book, but, but from... Uh, what I know of it a little bit, the idea of flipped. We'll see kind of where we go with that tonight. I have Tim and I talked for about five minutes on the phone, so we'll see kind of where everything goes. But I was thinking about the idea of flipped when I picked out the last song as well as this one right here. We're going to do Every Grain of Sand. Is that next in your packet? That's what we're doing next. <laughs> you tell me what's next in your packet. That's what we're doing. Um, with Every Grain of Sand, um, I was thinking about sort of this fundamental uh, reimagining of how... Uh, of how grace and, and hope and mercy might break into the world um, in a way that would transform every, every sort of molecule, um, even down to every grain of sand. In the time of my confession, in the hour of my deepest need,
song that I think with the uh, drawing that Tim did on the board last week, which seems always like a dangerous thing when Tim starts drawing on that whiteboard, but when he drew on the whiteboard last week, he was talking about uh, sort of two alternate, maybe even somewhat competing visions about how society and how our lives might be organized. Um, And I was thinking of how uh, one of the ways that uh, a community of, uh, of loving faith might organize itself um, that would be different than, say, the economic uh, market sort of based realities that we live in, um, certainly in the West at least. I was thinking of how one of the things that happens oftentimes in sort of corporate environments is that it's the land of the bottom line uh, where what matters at the end of a quarter, especially the larger the corporation, what matters at the end of the quarter is, is whether the stock is up or down. And I was thinking of how uh, this song sort of sprang to mind as I was, as I was thinking about uh, in sort of relationship with one another uh, in building a community together uh, that, that we somehow live into an alternate vision than that, that somehow we would live into a version where we hang in there uh, with one another uh, no matter how difficult it might seem and uh, no matter how dark the times might be. So I thought of this song, Tougher Than the Rest. I think we've done it maybe once before, so if you know it, please sing. If you don't, you can listen. If you catch on, join in. It's Springsteen. It's not too hard to join in with. Girls, they want a handsome dance. 
I'm right, we did that song uh, last summer, The Gospel According to Bruce Springsteen. I love that song. And one of the things that Mark has kind of set us up for conversing about tonight is this idea that there's, there's something magical in its possibility in terms of relationship. There's, uh, there's the possibility for imagination that goes beyond the norms of the way our lives are constructed. And we're certainly going to talk about some things I think that will be useful to do that for. But let me give you an opportunity to stand up and greet the people that are around you. If you're around somebody you don't know, certainly introduce yourself. Uh, offer them the peace of Christ or just a big hello. And I'll give us a shout in a couple minutes and we'll jump into the dialogue. So thanks, everybody. Hey, I want to apologize that you really did miss a treat tonight. Um, my, my friend Doug Paget and we go back to um, 1997, I think. We were both youth pastors in very similar megachurches. Minneapolis for him, uh, uh, Boston for me, and we were told of each other that we were going to be at kind of an intimate event, like 40 
people, uh, and we were told of each other by mutual friends. And uh, we kind of forgot that, but I sat down beside Doug uh, the first session, and the conversation uh, was one of those moments that you have with somebody, and you realize, we're going to be really good friends. This is not like a, a conference conversation. So we have been great friends for and I said that wrong. I said 1997. It was really 1987. Uh, and so we've been great friends for 28 or so years. And I had the opportunity to read a good chunk of Flipped this morning. In fact, if Doug had called an hour earlier, I might could have done his thing. Because, again, when you know somebody for 30 years, I had not gotten to a story in the book that I hadn't heard from him or wasn't at the moment when the story was happening. And so the book was very, very familiar. And I do want to recommend that you read this. Let me get one kind of, because it relates to what we're going to talk about today, is Doug, Doug is my most obsessive friend. Uh, when I met him at 23 or 24, he was a teetotaler, didn't drink coffee, was a kind of vegan evangelist. And I mean, he just like jumped in on everybody in the room because all of us were like 26 years old and we were crawling to the coffee pot at some ridiculous 7 a.m. meeting. I mean, Doug is hardcore. He's the kid that converted to Christianity in his junior year of high school. He's 6'8". He was a college basketball player and was literally testifying at the Supreme Court a year later because they forbade the handing out of religious leaflets at his high school. I mean, he just does nothing minimally. Everything is over the top. One of the stories that he tells is being a basketball player. He's played pickup basketball his whole life. Every time I've been in Minneapolis, uh, he drags me to the gym and he, I run and he plays basketball, but, but three years ago, after having, being ill, uh, form, he had a, one of the hepatitises, he was really, 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 really sick, and he had some sort of injury that was preventing him from playing basketball, and in his recovery, he was running on the treadmill, and he, he ran like two miles, no injury, three miles, no injury, four miles, no injury. And he said, you know, I think I might be able to run. And somebody handed him that book, Born to Run. If some of you guys read that book, Born to Run. And so in 23 months as a runner, Doug has done, oh, 15 half marathons, 10 marathons, two 30 milers, a 50 miler, and a 24 hour run where he covered 85 miles. I mean, he is, he is my obsessive friend. When he goes for it, he goes for it entirely. And one of the things that for him as a kid evangelized into, you know, a conservative evangelical world, um, one of the things that Doug wanted to do was be the best Christian he possibly could be at 17, as a youth pastor at 25. And one of the things he took great pride in, and this is, you know, a standard form of theology for many, is this idea that there's a separation between us and God. There's a gap, and that something needs to fill that gap. And Doug would be the type of person who would be the most obsessive person in the world of doing whatever it takes to fill that gap for his own life, as well as helping others do that. And the, he recounts a story with a friend of ours who's a theologian who said, you know, maybe you're thinking about this all wrong. What if um, God is as deeply present in us as we can be with God? And what if there's no gap that needs to be filled in? Then in some ways, rather than living with this reality, like you might be sometimes, I need to impress a a boss, a spouse, a friend, a colleague, a lover, whoever. What if you can just enjoy a relationship with somebody that doesn't involve some sort of transaction or some sort of proving your way into that relationship? So that conversation literally happened years ago. 
totally transformed. It flipped him, and to use the metaphor of the book, of thinking about what does it mean to relate to and enjoy God. And one of the things I would love for you guys to, to see at some point, their work in Solomon's porch is just absolutely amazing in that way uh, in terms of uh, of breaking down the barriers between community life and church life. Because we understand if you're new with us, there's, it's an amazing act of boldness to come to a church where you don't know people and you walk in a door and people might be looking at you and they might be some sort of insider theology or practice or something that you don't know. It's, it's hard work. And one of the things that they've done is that, hey, if, if relating to God is as much us and God and God in us, then what would it look like if a church did that? And so one of the things that they've done, it's a building almost like this. It's a little bit bigger, but they've taken one whole wing and turned it into a kind of a holistic healing type of space. Yoga that happens you know, eight or nine times a day with multiple instructors, uh, uh, counseling, body work, whole ranges of things. And what happens is their community tends to spill in and out of that space with the recognition that, oh yeah, I think there's a church here too. Um, and so the, it, it's the idea that in some ways relating to a group of people who are trying to relate to God is much more playful than in some way trying to impress God. I say that a lot because you guys know from my own background, I spent a lot of energy performing for God uh, in my early life or as a pastor. And it's, it's something that I constantly find myself unlearning. So I recommend his book. Um, I, you will go about 120 pages without finding a single theological word that you need to consult something on. It's written for us to kind of enjoy. So, so buy it. It's, a, it's a, you know, a, a simple buy. And I think it's a good conversation. And it's a good one for our community. Uh, Doug and Solomon's Porch have certainly been significant uh, actors in our own formation. When we were imagining Emmaus Way, Jim and Gail, and people remember that, um, Solomon's Porch was about a five-year-old church. And so I had the opportunity to sit on their leadership meetings from time to time and listen to the mistakes they made, the frustrations they had, things that would have been their do-overs. And we at least skipped a few things that, uh, that were frustrating to them. So anyway, it's a, it, it would have been a good evening. So I'm sorry that you're not getting that. Um, one of the things that, that Doug talks about is the power of relationship and conversation and encounter, how encounter kind of transforms us. Um, just as a quick reminder, you can listen to the podcast on these, um, but we've been talking about two biblical texts that are deeply significant in the realm of encounter. One is an individual encounter. We spent about three weeks on Acts 8, a really powerful story of an evangelist and an Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, and and it's, it, it's set up in a way where you might think it's a story of, a, of an evangelist uh, evangelizing the Ethiopian or the eunuch or somebody who's different because we as Westerners, and not everybody here is a Westerner, but as Westerners we're set up to think about the gospel as something that we take to others. But the beauty of the story is it's actually transformative. The, the African man is transforming the church. Uh, the person who's the target of the conversation is, uh, is Philip the evangelist where that man says, you know, probably as a God-fearer, having been prevented to be in the temple because he was a eunuch, saying, what would stop you from baptizing me? In other words, a point of challenge of, is there some prejudice that you have or some lack of inclusiveness that you have that might prevent you from receiving me? So I encourage you to kind of work through that text. I think the podcasts on that are worthy to listen about. And that's an individual encounter. Last week, we looked at Exodus 
5, which talked about the power of relationship more in a group, nation, community narrative. And it was the story of Israel saying to Pharaoh, uh, as a precursor to their own release and liberation, saying, let us go out into the wilderness. Let us worship our God for three days. And Pharaoh, as I kind of pointed out as, as an opinion of mine, was not a foolhardy man. He wasn't a stubborn idiot. He understood that three days in the wilderness worshiping their God was the exact thing he couldn't tolerate. Because when people get together, especially people who have been enslaved and dehumanized, if life in the Thomas household is making bricks or making food, 18 hours a day, there's not a lot of conversation about, hey, honey, what could our life be like? Or what could the next chapter, the kids are, are done with college, what could it be like? The conversation is pretty simple. More bricks and more food. That's all that you do. And so Pharaoh understood that this encounter of the people in the wilderness is where they were going to imagine and think and see things differently. And there were going to things that were going to happen around the campfire, things that were going to happen in the setting of worship that would be utter transformative. He knew it was dangerous. He knew it was seditious. He knew it was the seeds of revolution. So once again, two stories where one is one-to-one and one is a nation aspiring to be together, but both of them show the transformative power of relationship. And this is actually where we're going to be going in August is talking about how we relate with each other, a process of relationship with the same hopes that those relationships would be revolutionary, that they would be given Giving us imaginations beyond what our current circumstances are. So, um, so this was going to fit beautifully with this. Um, I want to talk a little bit about barriers to relationship. But before doing that, I want to give you a chance to put you in the storyteller's seat for a second. And um, give me an example, one or two of you, of a, a relational encounter that you had. That after that encounter, maybe not in a moment, it might have been months of conversation. It might have been a moment, but an encounter that you had that in some way transformed the way that you looked at the world or the way that you operated in the world. Could a couple of you give me an example of that, of an encounter that you had that was that transformative to you? Sure. Yeah, Joe. So this is one that you share with me. Uh, when having just talked with Emily, my, my, I got Kenya on the brain now. And so um, when you and I went to Kenya looking for some way to be engaged with uh, some local Africans in responding to AIDS, we found a woman who was uh, working in a, one of my urban slums. And that experience of being engaged in Africa changed for us because we now saw the situation through her eyes. Her guest, and um, she was in the she was the strong one, and, and we were the followers, and we learned how to be present in that very that, that place that was so very different for us, having never lived there. Um, that it, it it led us to reconceive how the church could be involved in those situations, and to try to change a church to uh, change many churches and helping them to imagine a new way of being engaged in very difficult places in, in Africa. Jane Wathomi, 
who uh, was a young married woman, a couple young kids, seminary student, had lots of excuses not to be involved, and a very wealthy woman, the kind of person that would have not, it wasn't really allowed to do some of the things that she did. And she went and started walking uh, on Gadarungai, which is a slum, uh, in a quarry, literally a quarry where homes were built in that. And she noticed the absence of religious people, but she also noticed this mass community of women who were dying of AIDS raising kids and she found one other person a nurse who was walking the community and she did something deeply dangerous uh, uh, and especially in, in her cultural life this wasn't something that would naturally be initiated by a woman by like her because she was expected to enjoy the fruits of what she the place that she'd reached in society and her imagination has been, you should get the beacon of hope story from Jim. It's a pretty amazing story. What that's done. It's a great example. Yeah. Because when I travel to Africa, I often see the antithesis to that. I see a team of people who are all wearing the same color t-shirt who are um, going to go do something to a community. And, um, you know, this, the situation we had was much more relational than, than what I see others doing in some in fact, in many ways, the conversation about Emmaus Way was born in that. When we talked about coming to Durham, we talked a lot about, hey, let's not try to lead something in Durham or say, hey, Durham, we're here, ready to go. You know, rather than let's find the things that are already happening. Let's find the footprints that are already present. And it, it's, a, it's a different way of living. It's a, it is a, a relational encounter that's transformative to, to communities. One more person. Do we have another story? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, because of the racial issue in America. United States of America, sorry, South America, North America. Uh, <laughs> a lot of Americans out there. And, uh, I went to Raleigh. They had an open forum for the city hall. And the last speaker blew my mind totally. Because everyone was talking about color more than anything else. And this last speaker just got out of bed because she felt the Holy Spirit wrench her up. And she comes out and gets on the mic of hundreds, close to a thousand people. And she says, when we say us and them, this is when we start killing each other. And uh, that totally made me think differently because um, even with colors of saying, we say us and them. Mm-hmm. And we've seen it across the ocean. And we've seen it here. And that totally made me think, you know, who is us and who is them? But if we are one race, human race, it should be us. It's amazing how encounters can change our language. And in the changing of our language, we change the way we think about the way that we live in the world. That's a powerful example. And it's a perfect segue to into, um, I want to raise a second point. It's one that we talked about last week. I want to remake it with an expansion. But um, is what are the things that prevent the kind of relationality that's transformative. We all have these stories. I imagine a lot of you could tell a story about relationships, whether it was in a group setting or a one-to-one setting, that was deeply transformative to the way that you looked at the world. As Doug would say, it kind of flips you from one place to another place. So let's rehearse for a second the things that happen that break down that type of transformative relationship. We used the term sin um, uh, four or five months ago looking at this work by uh, Dorothy. Where's Brian when I need him? I know how to say it now, Sir Lay. Uh, but... Um, 
But she talked about sin being the thing that destroys relationship. It, it, uh, and, and we talked about ways that, that, that I asked you this question last week. Talk about what we do to relationship. And let's name that as the brokenness that lives in our world. And some of the things that you talked about, uh, Rachel, you made a really good point of the idea that, that sometimes a, a mode of living for people is to look at people as assets, or instruments to my own plan. So I've got something that I want to accomplish. Happens all the time in ministry. A pastor has a vision of something they want done. And then they look around and say, basically, the way I'm relating to you is how do you relate to the thing that I want accomplished? So if you're on board with it, then you're a wonderful person and thank you. And if you're an opposition, then you're somebody that needs to be overcome or pushed aside or marginalized. And there's a lot of life that fits in that category. We also talked about the thing that breaks down relationships. Relationships in our society can be uh, the, the whole notion of, and especially in the competitive world that we live in, we naturally compete with each other. We compare, we contrast, we create relationships where, you know, we maybe we have the Efords over for dinner and we're friendly conversing like that. And they've got three kids and we've got two. And really the idea is who can reach the top of the bat. You remember how you did that to decide who got the bat first? Who can tell the best story about their kids that somehow positions you as the most effective parent or the most successful people? And that becomes part of the natural dialogue that we have in the world that we live in. Comparison, competition, uh, using people as assets or utilities, all of these things ultimately position us differently with each other. So that encounter, as I look at somebody over the room here is like, how do I match up to Peggy? Not who is Peggy and what is her story and what could we say to each other, but where do we fit in this competitive narrative that we live in? Um, So last week, I'm going to try to do this a little bit better this week, but I drew kind of a a couple of paradigms of the world that we live in. And I want to show uh, this again real quickly as a way of seeing how the world has changed in several hundred years and how we are in many ways uh, forced into relationships that uh, that make us competitive with each other. So this is a view, and this is by no means, I wish we could go back a hundred years from now because that's not it at all. But what I drew was, in some ways... The world can look like this. Let me get some other colors. And we we use the example of often the world for many was dominated by what I called a civic life. And I'm going to add to that because I didn't say this very well last week. But the civic life at one point was the things that deeply connected people like small towns. Um, trade unions, associations with each other, churches. Uh, If you're you're reading like, uh, and not that that's always good, but the connecting point was this kind of deep connection that happened in a face-to-face life in a town with each other or in an association with each other or in a church environment with each other. And so like, for example, if you're in Puritan New England and you get excommunicated, if that's the big circle, you're pretty much screwed. I mean, you're, you're basically out of life. Um, The smaller circles are, I'm going to put here as a G, for government, because government, you know, showed up every now and then, maybe had a war that you needed to fight, but government did not impact your daily life. It was, and and I grew up in rural North Carolina, I mean... 
If you asked me who the governor was, I probably knew. If you asked me who the mayor of Charlotte was, I did not know. But I knew how Mount Harmony Baptist Church shaped our life because that was the kind of the whole of our being growing up in the country. So government was small. The other thing that was pretty small was the market. I mean, there were market forces and there were trade stuff that was going on. But to some degree, the market lived embedded in a civic life because it was a world of largely small exchange uh, between goods. And people were largely growing their own food, producing the things that they needed. So the market didn't provide a whole lot. It didn't advertise to them a whole lot. It didn't tell them what they needed. So this was a way of life that was pretty normal. Ben, let me borrow your... In a man's way, we spend big bucks on erasers, and this is, this is what they look like. It's going to go away. <laughs> Nothing but high tech here. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. So this is the... With that little correction that we did, um, the world that we live in now, the big circle is the market, which, and, and the market does great things. I'm, I'm going to talk more about when we deify the market as a solution to everything that we, that we, we need in our lives. Uh, but the market transcends what nation you live in. It, 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 so for some reason, when my 401k comes back, if there's a problem in Greece or problem in China, there's less money in that, uh, because we're, it doesn't matter that I'm American. I'm a part of a market system. And then what has happened is, um, government certainly gotten bigger, but as we'll hear in the campaign this year, it's largely, it largely serves the market. Like we talk to them about the market like an ailing child or a healthy child. Ooh, the market's not doing very well, sort of ill on the edges, disturbed, coughing, spitting up. And, and, and we kind of like, what can we do to help that market out? Because that sounds like a sick child. I mean, that sounds like the Wooten should go run to the, the nursery and take care of their kid. Um, and then the other thing that's gotten pretty small is this civic life that, in other words, how we imagine ourselves is not so much uh, in these, you know, tr- like we asked Jim, Jenny about her, her trade union life and didn't seem to be very vibrant at this point. You know, the, these civic organizations have gotten a lot smaller. Now, I included churches in that. I want somebody, let me throw a point out there, but what about mega churches? What about churches that are gigantic? 10,000, 25,000 people, multi-sites all over the place. Uh, you, you know, how can you draw civics so small when churches are so large? You want to take a shot at that? No, Okay. I mean, so it's like you show up and, you know, maybe, like, maybe after you going a while, you join a small group, whatever, you know those people, but that's like half a dozen people or a dozen people, you don't know most of the people, it's like going to a concert in the general public, and you have no relationships to those people or connections to those people. Sure, there might be 25,000 people here, but the demand relationally and the ask for you is pretty minimalistic. If you're conservative, the demand is to make a relationship with Jesus. But I don't need Joel to do that. I can get that straight. Maybe Mark says something that helps me out. But I don't really need you for that. And in some way, the, the life in that setting is positioned as more of a reinforcement to the market, right? What do you want? How can we deliver it? Um, and, and things are positioned as attractive based on the way we might purchase goods and services. So despite the fact that, and, and the church is getting smaller in America, it's just... 
gathering larger, but there are less people doing it. But this is the world that we tend to live in, where the market tends to dominate. Uh, Government is there, but serves the market, and our civic life has gotten smaller. Now, obviously, that's an overgeneralization, but it is generally true. Now, here's another question to you. What does the market do to us relationally, writ large? Now, again, there's a million good examples of where the market is the right way to do things. I'm not trying to make this an overly Marxist statement, but but how does the market tend to affect the way we relate to each other or relate in the world? Well, especially when we deify it as the solution to every problem in the world. How how do people relate in a market-obsessed world? They compete, sure. The, the culture of scarcity and scarcity. Right. There's, scar- there's, you know, there, there's certainly a, a more of a language of scarcity because the Thomases are producing something that the Fishbecks are producing, that, uh, that the Haases are producing, and the ultimate question is, which is better and at a better price? So there's some sense of winners and losers in that. Sure. Other ways that we... Sure, Rachel. Um, you don't really have to know anybody, um, personally at least. Because um, I'm thinking about how, um, you know, when when the market was smaller, like you could go to a butcher and you would know your butcher. Or like, um, But like now, like you, you can go to the grocery store and you can get the meat there, but you don't really have to know. And so, like, it's easy. Everything becomes depersonalized if you treat the market as if, like, it'll solve all your problems or, like, it, that's, that's where you receive everything. But, like, it disconnects you from other people, um, like the people who help you live, basically. Because you need other people to help you live. Like, you need people to help you to eat or um, help you, like, find clothes if you don't it's a different encounter, isn't it? There's actually a great Andy Griffith on this, so I won't tell the show, but it's a, there's a great episode on the very analogy that you used about the local butcher, right? The person that you know, that you know where they get their food, you know how they get their food, and it's, a, it's an encounter. And in, in, the, in the relationship of that encounter, it's really different, isn't it, in terms of the, the play between you is not how can I get the most of what I can get from you, the lowest price from you such that you can't feed your family or the most money from you such that I can make more money because that's a person you're going to see in a civic organization later in the week. It's a person that you're going to see on the street. So the way you relate to that person rather than a, a very depersonalized relationship is something that's, in, that's deeply different. And so that's a good example, Rachel, of how when kind of our life is less organized around uh, even buying goods and services from people that we know uh, from kind of buying goods and services in a, in a blind way. Uh, what it does, to use a Marxist point, is it separates labor from the outcome of labor. You work on something, but you don't see how it, how it, how it comes out in people's lives. Or you buy something, and you don't know who made it or why they made it or what went into the making of that product. This is a great example. Anything else? Yeah, sure. Wendy. Um, in California, found that in America people talk to their therapists, they don't talk to their friends. Sure. 
Yeah, and so this is another example, and obviously we need therapists and the great training they have, but it can over-professionalize every aspect of our relationship. It, it can over-professionalize your pastor, your therapist, your friend. All of these people can be products of kind of a market imagination. A theologian that I like, um, his, his name is William Cavanaugh. Um, he makes this point. Let me try one more erasing Skip it. I'll just tell a story. So he makes the point that in a competitive world, people get over-specialized. So he takes this, he makes this idea that imagine kind of, this is largely how the United States has related to smaller economies. You know, you kind of look around there and you say, Ben Thole, you're good at making bananas. You are the banana-making place, right? And Mark, uh, we're, this is a little illicit, but we do need cocaine, <laughs> and, and, and you make it well, <laughs> and you've got the ability to defend yourself making that. So you're our cocaine maker. Ben's got the bananas covered. Uh, we need somebody who's covering like sugar and all of those things. Those of you who are fans of like the Hunger Games, you kind of see the world operated, a, a capital that receives goods and a colonies that are turned into overly known producers of a single, single product, coal, uh, whatever the, the capital or the largest economy needs. And so Kavanaugh makes this point that this is, and it's actually played up in church life when we kind of create this competitive world, like who has the best band, who has the best whatever. Uh, it, it still produces this mindset that, uh, that Ben, we don't, I don't want much from you except bananas at a good price. And I'm sorry that, you know, that, you know, I don't know that, that hurricane hit the Island. We're bummed about that, but how many bananas do you have for me? That becomes the dialogue when we kind of get disassociated or over uh, centralized into one kind of product. Um, and, Another thing that tends to happen in this kind of market world is that we need to kind of hold on to the imagination that everybody has equal opportunity, right? That, that if you work hard enough, you will succeed. Um, it, because in, in a market-driven world, we need to tell people that there is not only this story of merit and opportunity, Everybody has the same opportunity, and if for some reason, I don't know, if, if the Jakeses have less, then, hey, they should have worked a little harder, right? In fact, we, we've had some dialogues this week in the news about people making that very point. People need to work harder in the culture where people work more hours a week than anywhere in the world except a couple other places. So what this world tends to do is create this imagination of the people who succeed have greater merit and there's equal opportunity. Now, if you mix that merit and opportunity in a big stew, what comes out? I'm having a little fun here. Donald Trump comes out, right? I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, Donald Trump was only doing last week what you should do in a world that works that way, right? What did he lead with? What's his first paragraph in his campaign? No, he got racist second. The second paragraph was racist. He started with how much money he has. His first paragraph was, I have $8.7 billion. So living the market game, I have more than you. And the only two reasons that I could have more than you, right, is we had an equal opportunity, but I'm better. Therefore, I should be your leader. And then let's look at others who have less. What could they be? 
rapist or whatever. So in some ways, he's not being crazy. He actually just understands the rules and are saying them pretty crassly. So we talk about the power of relationship and I've had a little fun today about talking about what breaks down relationships. And obviously I've over-stereotyped the market, but, but we do live in a competitive society that works that way, uh, that, that in many ways fashions the, the theology, the, the way that we speak to each other about God. So let's think about things, and this is where we're going with this, that we can do to restore relationship. That living in a world that's the world that we live in, how do we restore relationship? Uh, one example, um, the guy that I just mentioned, uh, William Cavanaugh, talking about the bananas and cocaine and all of those things. is He's a, a Catholic, and he says one of the most powerful messages of the Eucharist, especially in Catholic theology. Somebody who grew up Catholic, what, what, what do we, what, what's imagined at the Eucharist table from a Catholic theology? What's present at the table? We don't have a lot of Catholics here, but actual body and blood of Jesus Christ, right? But is more of it present at a mega church or a small church? How much of the body of Jesus Christ is present at the table in a Catholic? All of it. And so what he's making the point that in kind of a radical Catholic theology, it breaks down this kind of bananas and cocaine and sugar thing because there's this idea that the whole body of Christ is present at every table. So I can't say to Ben, you're just my banana guy because he represents an incarnation of the whole presence of God. So one of the points that that Kavanaugh makes is that The Eucharist is something that changes our imagination. For example, he writes in a book called Torture and Eucharist, which I recommend uh, as a really good read. It's looking at Pinochet's Chile. And if you know that regime from, what, 74 to 1990, they were experts in disappearing bodies. Uh, Anybody who opposed the regime essentially just disappeared. And at first, the church was like, okay, that's okay, because we're in charge of souls. They're in charge of bodies. What they do with bodies is fine. We're in charge of helping souls get good with God until they realize the craziness of that. Even their own theology kind of challenges that. So what did they start doing is in their own theology, they started making bodies visible. So little communities like this would actually leave worship sites and go stand in front of torture centers. And, and these were nondescript. They looked like a, worn, you know, a torn down factory or something like that. And they would just stand out there with signs saying, this is where the bodies are disappeared. And this was an active theology for them. And it was imagining a world where everybody matters, not just the ones that you can see. So there are a million different ways that the way we relate to each other can create a different, if you can imagine that little small C, um, let me turn this back to you before I turn it back to Mark. One or two people give me just an example of how communities of faith can actually make that kind of civic part of our life more significant and change the imagination or the way that we relate to each other from the kind of competitive measuring world. Any examples? I, I gave you one with Eucharist, but I'm sure you probably can think of one or two. An idea? Well, um, this is not my, I I remember me saying this one time, that when we have um, relationships 
with people who are different than we are, who are um, in different stages of life than we are, the temptation to compare is reduced because you're you're in a different place, and so you're less likely to, you know, if I'm if I'm sitting there with someone who has another seven year old, we're more likely to compare what's going on. But if we're in a relate group of relationships where there are people who are all in different places, then mm-hmm. um, it may be easier to resist the temptation to compare. What happens is. In relationships across difference, especially in that border space between difference, that's where the us and them breaks down. And that's actually the most powerful transformative space is the border space between you and someone who's different, which is the very thing in the world we live in we don't have to do. We can live in a community where all the homes cost mine, like all cost the same. So almost everybody has the same kind of income. We can live in spaces where we can't imagine people of difference. But when we encounter that difference, then all of a sudden there's a new imagine. This is actually what we want to invite this community into doing is truly having significant conversations over, over difference. Um, SK, Ben, Emily, many of the people who've been in the leadership of the church, uh, uh, Dave Eford, uh, Jenny, people who've served as our lay leader. Um, one of the things that you would probably say is because of that role, you have to hear stories that might be different than your friendship group. You might have to imagine something that uh, people who are in a different demographic. And that becomes powerfully transformative to us. And that's one of the things that in this whole idea of relationships, the next step for us is to imagine, are there ways where we can imagine life differently? And I'm going to encourage us to do so in in a, a relating way. So after Ben talks about listening sessions, we're going to talk about relationship meetings and how, how we can do those things with the idea of letting a kingdom space be much more of a dominant space in our lives. Uh, Mark, uh, in your 73 minutes, you have, have brought forward a song of confession and absolution, which was pretty amazing, and we're thankful for that. All these impermanent 
present yet elusive and passive yet abusive they're tearing out the heart in utter silence and all these impermanent things yeah, they point in all directions like second hand reflections and they're leading us to subtle shades of violence So I keep hanging on To things that never stay Things that just keep stringing us along From day to day my soul and rinse me and purge my mind of honesty and fire all these impermanent things will they all add up to zero but make believe that they're my hero yeah they fill my mind with doubt and false desires so I keep that just keep bringing us along from day to song that we might say could kind of go either way in terms of song of confession or song of absolution. There are ways that uh, the first couple of verses don't really look very comforting uh, in the way that we might hope a song of absolution would. But I think the later verses actually, uh, for me at least, are, are incredibly comforting. Um, the idea that we actually find a family, that we find a community, uh, even if we come to the table not having one, don't leave the table uh, without a family.
That song is based on one of the crazy statements that Jesus made that flips us. It's the idea, if you remember this absolutely bizarre statement that he made one time. And he said, hey, your, your mother, your father, they're outside, <laughs> your family. In a, in a world that was dominated by family relationship, that was the thing that held it together. And he said something crazy at that moment. He said, I don't have a mother and I don't have a father. I don't have, a, I don't have brothers and sisters. I have a community of people who do the will of God. And I think he imagines that very broadly. But the idea is he turns us entirely around from fixed relationships based on blood kinship to something entirely different. Something incredibly liberating from that statement. And I think that song is is based on that. Um, I want to point you before the table to another text that I think is one of the craziest radical text in the Bible. It's 1 Corinthians 11. And um, you guys know, I, I spent a lot of time being afraid when I was young and college and otherwise afraid of God, afraid I wouldn't measure up, afraid of the thing that I did that might send me to hell or into uh, the world. I, there was a lot of fear based on uh, relating to God. And I think that would have been the one thing Doug would have wanted to say to us tonight is that in that fear, we miss the whole joy of relating to a God who imagines our best and imagines us with deep love at all times. Um, but if you can remember, what's going on in, um, in Corinth is they're gathering at the table, but do you remember what's happening at the table for them? They're, they're, they're drunken, they're eating in excess. They're, in other words, what they're doing at the table is they're replicating their life. So some have more than others. It's very obvious at the table. Uh, some have different lifestyles than others. In a very ethically determined world, people are, are demonstrating that difference at the table. Um, and so in the midst of that kind of thing, and, and, and this is couched right between a statement about, about abuse at the table to eating or drinking unworthily. And I know when I used to read that, I used to be, oh, my gosh, I hope that I've confessed well. I hope that I've prayed well. I thought something bad about Elizabeth this week. I hope that, like, I've, God has forgiven it because we're, I might hand bread to her. You know, that was the fear of failing at the table was the dominant experience. Um, and it, it misses the point uh, when uh, the, the words that are read here about Jesus is, for, for when I receive from the Lord, what I also handed to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, something everybody has, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He proclaimed the feast that everyone was to join into. It was a feast where the encounter between persons was to be full in every way, not couched in difference, not couched in lack, not couched in abundance, but couched in real relationship. And it couched in this imagined world. In fact, the church spent most of the first century figuring out how can we share this cup? How can we share this table without excluding a category of people? The church was desperately fearful that Jews and Greeks wouldn't eat together. They were desperately fearful that men and women wouldn't eat together. It was one of the most frightening things that happened in the world that this encounter was actually breaking down the social boundaries that kept people apart. Um, Here, that's the thing that we try to do at the table is we break bread and uh, give each other um, bread and say the body of Christ broken for you or pour wine and juice with the realization that there's not a priest that stands between you and God or stands between you and the people in this room. We do that for each other. We are that community of people who are mothers and brothers and sisters. We are those people to each other. We also ask all of you to come to the table with the sense that everyone is invited. No one is excluded from this table based on their faith, their life in any way because it's the recognition that God has formed an entirely new community in the kingdom of God. And, and, and we are trying to imagine and live into that kingdom. So I invite you tonight in the table with those crazy words that we've just read, understanding that the only way that you can abuse this table is by imagining it not be appropriate for someone else, uh, but to eat and drink in a way that uh, we feel the abundance of God's kingdom. So join us at the table.